Hello. Happy April Fool's Day and welcome to the National Leprechaun Museum podcast. And today we're going to be talking about fools and foolishness. I say we, but it really is just me sitting here alone in my bedroom with my microphone. I'm Stephen. I'm one of the storytellers at the National Leprechaun Museum. And let's just jump straight into the topic. So fools occupy an interesting place in Western culture in general. In Shakespeare's plays, the fool is usually uh, a peasant or, or other fairly downtrodden person who pretends to be an idiot or is often looked down upon, but is actually quite wise and is the only one with any real common sense or understanding of what's going on around them. You can see this in The Fool in King Lear, The Clown in Othello, Launcelot Gobbo in The Merchant of Venice, etc, etc. And that's a common idea of the fool archetype throughout Europe and even parts of America. You can see the same thing in the character of the Harlequin. You can also see it in the idea of the fool from Tarot as well. But in Ireland, Ireland has an unusual view of the fool. The fool in Ireland is usually, not always, a person of not necessarily power and influence, but a person who tends to look down on others usually ends up becoming the fool of the story, the butt of the story, the butt of the joke. And that's probably because these stories were usually told by the the working classes. And so, obviously, you'd want to make fun of the, the landlords, the people looking down on you, the people wielding power over you. So we're going to go into one of those stories straight away. Our many people are very free and easy in using the term fairy. But here in Ireland, that's a very bad idea. They hate that word. They hate it when people call them fairies. They prefer to be addressed as the good folk, the little people, the good neighbours, the gentry, things like that. And to be perfectly honest, if your name were Robert, but you preferred to be called Bob, and I insisted on calling you Robert, I would be being incredibly rude, and you would be well within your rights to punch me in the face. And it's the same with the good folk. They've made it very plain what they do and do not want to be called. And so if we, in our own rudeness, ignore that, call them the wrong thing, and get in trouble for it, well, that's our own fault, isn't it? Now, there was a man from County Limerick named Carol O'Daly, and he was a very rude man indeed. He had no manners for his friends or his family, no manners for the people of the town or strangers on the street, and he especially had no manners for the good folk, whom he didn't even believe in. Now, one day he was riding his horse along the road into town, past Knockfirna Hill. And as he was riding along, he came upon a farmer on a white horse, going 
going in the same direction. And being very bored, he turned to the farmer and he said, Sure, where is it you're heading yourself? Ah, well, I'm going up to the top of the hill. That's a long way to be going. What has you heading up there? I'm just going up to talk with the good folk. You're going all the way to the top of the hill to talk with the fairies. Sure, that's nonsense. They're not real. Don't be calling them that, said the farmer, very much taken aback. That'll be a curse on the both our heads. The farmer fell into uncomfortable silence, very unhappy with the disrespect Carol O'Daly was showing the good folk. They rolled alongside each other, intense quiet for several minutes, until they came upon a fork in the road, with a path leading all the way to the top of Knockfierna Hill. Without a word, not even a nod to Carol O'Daly, the farmer turned onto this path and rode all the way to the top of the hill. A Carol, he kept riding past until a thought overcame him. I don't believe he's going all the way up there to talk with the fairies. For that's nonsense. I want to know what he's really up to. So he tied up his horse at the bottom of the hill, and he began to slowly, quietly creep up the path, not wanting the farmer to hear that he was coming. When he reached the top, he peered through the hedgerow, trying to catch a glimpse of the farmer. He could see the farmer's white horse dancing and prancing across the grass, but no sign of the farmer himself. Eventually, he lost patience. He shoved his way through the hedgerow to look for the farmer. But all that he could find was a wide, deep hole in the side of an embankment at the top of Knockfierna Hill. And he thought to himself, I've heard of the pool dive of Knockfierna. People say it's a doorway. To the fairy world. That's nonsense. There's no such thing. I'll knock on the door and prove it. Now I have some idea of what you may be thinking. This is just a hole in the ground. How on earth can he knock on the door? But Carol O'Daly, he was a very intelligent man. That's a lie. He was an absolute idiot. He went off and he found a big stone. Bigger than the two of his fists together. He dragged it over to the hole, raised it up above his head, and he flung it down with all the strength he could muster. And he leaned over the hole, listening to the sound of the stone clattering off the rocks, trying to hear when it landed at the bottom. When suddenly, it shot back out of the hole with more strength than he'd thrown it in with. It smashed him in the face and sent him rolling back down to the bottom of the hill. The next morning, Carol O'Daly woke up where he had landed the afternoon before, next to his horse at the bottom of the hill. His front was all covered in blood from his nose. His nose itself was broken in two places, and his face 
was all battered and bruised from where the stone had struck him. And from that day forward, Carol O'Daly never, ever referred to the good folk as fairies, ever again. Carol O'Daly is a very, very good example of the kind of fool that you see in Irish folklore. It's usually someone who thinks they're above everyone else, someone who thinks they're much smarter and much more perceptive than everyone else, but in reality, that could not be further from the truth. So now Emily has a story about four fools, one of one kind and three of another. So I hope you enjoy that. Hello, listeners and leprechauns. This is Emily coming to you from my lair, or blanket fort, whichever you'd prefer to call it. I'm sure you've been hearing talk of how some people are acting a little bit foolish. Well, I've got a story for you about three incredibly foolish brothers and their very, very clever wives. Now, I first heard this story over the summer. I was down at the Cape Clear International Storytelling Festival, and there was a storyteller there called Karen Edwards. If you want to hear her tell some stories, she was on the Storytellers of Ireland live stream, and I think they have a recording of her up on their YouTube page. But at a story swap, she told this story. And I think you'll see why it's a story that I've definitely remembered. Thank you, Karen, for telling me this story and thus enabling me to share it with the listeners of the Leprechaun Museum podcast. See, once long ago, there were three brothers. Now, these three brothers, they were known to be a, a little bit foolish, but their foolishness was made up for by the fact that they had married three sisters, three sisters who were very, very clever. The three brothers and the three sisters, well, they lived in three cottages cottage to each couple, close enough that they could just see each other from outside the window. And in the place where they lived, there were also two pubs. Now, about once a week, the siblings would meet up with each other. The three brothers, they would go off to one of the pubs, and the three sisters would go off to the other pub. Because it was good to meet up with your friends and family without having to drag your spouse along. And also, if your spouse wasn't there... Well, you could complain about them. And this was generally what the three sisters did when they got together. They complained about how foolish their husbands were, uh, but they loved them anyway. Now, one particular evening, three sisters were sitting down in the snug of the pub, talking away, laughing, joking and complaining about their husband's foolishness. But upstairs in the fine room was the local lord who'd gone out for a bit of supper. And he was trying to enjoy a quiet meal, but he kept hearing these three women cackling below him. And he was getting very fed up with it. In fact, he got so fed up with it, he decided he was going to go down and have a few words with them. He marched down the stairs, but as he was walking down the stairs, he was able to hear what they were talking about. How they were complaining about their husbands, about what foolish men they had married, each trying to outdo the other with stories of their husband's egetry. Now, the local lord, he did not think women should be speaking of their husbands thus. So he marched over 
to the snug where the three women were sitting, enjoying an evening to themselves. Women! He bellowed. I have heard what you have been saying and I am shocked. Utterly appalled that you would speak of your husbands thus. Now, the three sisters were also a little bit shocked that this man was going to come over and give them such unsolicited advice. But they held their tongues because he was the local lord and he owned the land that they lived on. But the youngest of the sisters, the one who had maybe been laughing a little bit louder and had maybe had one or two glasses more than the other, said, Well, it's only the truth that we speak. And the Lord said, Well, if it is the truth that you speak, you'll have no trouble proving it. You have three days. Three days in which to prove that your husbands are indeed as foolish as you say they are. If you can prove it to me, I will let you live a year rent-free on your farms. But if you cannot prove it to my satisfaction, I shall double your rents. And he left. Now, to any normal three sisters, this would have been terrible news, but not these three. Because as I said, these were three very clever women who were indeed married to some very foolish men. The sisters sat there and finished their drinks, whispering quietly to each other. And then they each went home to their house to await the return of their husband. Now, the three brothers each returned to their own home, very merry. And as soon as they were inside, they plopped themselves down on their beds and slept. Now, the thing about these three brothers was, as well as being three incredibly foolish men, there were also three incredibly heavy sleepers. Really, it might be easier to wake the dead than to wake these lads. And that was exactly what had given the sisters their idea. The first sister, while her husband was snoring away, she went and she got a beetroot. She sliced the beetroot and began to rub it all over his skin. Now, if anyone's ever handled beetroots, you'll know they do have a tendency to stain. And as she rubbed the beetroot over his skin, his skin became bright red. She then took out her sewing box and fashioned a long tail with a forked tip and two lovely little horns. She attached the horns to her husband's head and the tail to his back and waited. The second sister, well, while her husband was snoring away, she got some flour. She dusted his face with flour until he was chalk white. And when that was done... She went about the house, stopping the clocks, covering all the windows and mirrors, then put on her blackest dress, took out her rosary beads, lit a few candles and knelt by the bedside. She even got an onion and rubbed a bit of the juice under her eyes so that the tears would flow more easily. And the third sister. Well, it took her a little bit of time to think how she was going to accomplish her part of it. But her husband, well, he had some lovely long hair, hair that he was always brushing and combing and making a fuss of, which would have been fine except for the fact that he only had the long hair around the sides of his head and on the top he was bald as an egg. She'd been trying to tell him for a while that maybe he could cut it short and now was her chance. She picked up a razor and she shaved his head completely and then she waited. Three sisters waited but they didn't have to wait long. Soon, the first husband woke up. 
He stretched his arms out, turned over to say good morning to his wife, and his wife began to scream. The devil! The devil! There's a devil in my bed! And the, the man said, I, I, I'm not a devil, I'm your husband. And she said, no, you're the devil. Look at you, you've got red skin and you've got, you've got a, a, a long tail, you've got horns on your head. You're a devil, get out of my house, devil. The man looked in the mirror and indeed, he looked like a devil. And, well, he was a bit confused, so he decided he'd run over to his brother. I mean, his brother was a bit smarter than him and he'd, he'd be able to sort out this mess, no bother. Hopefully. The devil jumped out the window and began to run over to his brother's house. And just as he was running over, the second brother woke up. When he woke up, he saw that the room was dim. The, the mirror had been covered. The candles were lit and his wife was kneeling by the bedside, muttering away to a rosary. It looked like there was a wake. He said, what's going on? The second sister, she jumped to her feet, pointing an accusatory finger at her husband. And he said, shame on you. You're dead. What are you doing sitting up and talking to me? You're meant to lie down like a good corpse. The man tried to insist that, n that no, he wasn't dead. But his wife, she was adamant that he was dead. He got out of the bed and went over to the mirror, lifting up the cloth. And, well, he certainly looked dead in his reflection. He then looked out the window and saw that running towards his house was a red devil. And he thought, oh, I must be dead. And the devil's coming after me. I need to go to my brother. He'll know what to do. So he ran out of the house, running over to the third brother, with the devil running behind him. Now, as all this was happening, the third brother was just starting to wake up. And he turned to his wife to say good morning, and she began to shout at him. What are you doing in my house? Who are you, you stranger? And, and the third brother said, I'm, I'm your husband. And she said, I, you're not my husband. My husband is a fine man with a glorious head of hair on him. Look at you. You're bald as an egg. The man, he looked in the mirror, and indeed, he was as bald as an egg. He then looked out the window and saw what appeared to be a corpse being chased by a devil coming towards him. And he began to think, oh dear, I've lost my mind. He ran out of the house with his brother, who was a corpse, chasing him, being followed up behind by the brother, who was a devil. The three men, they began to run in circles, each trying to catch up with the other. The first two sisters, well, they went over to the house of the third. They put on the kettle made a cup of tea and began to laugh at how foolish their husbands were and how foolish the local lord had been to make such a wager with three such clever sisters. Now, after about an hour of running around like headless chickens, the three brothers were out of breath and they were spaced quite far apart and Belich began to consider his predicament. The third brother, who was now convinced that he had lost his mind and was a lunatic, said, well... I, I can't stay out here. I need to get myself to an asylum. So he went to where the local asylum was, which happened to be within walking distance. He went over and banged on the door and said, let me in, let me in. I'm a madman. I need to be inside. The warden of the asylum came out, looked him up and down and said, I can't let you in. Not without a certificate to prove that you're insane. I'll have to go to the local lord and get one. The second brother, the one who was now convinced that he was dead, thought, I can't stay out here. I need a good proper burial I need, and a nice pine box and a bit of earth to lie in. So he went over to the undertaker's. He began to bang on the door of the undertaker saying, I'm dead, I'm dead, and I demand to be buried. The undertaker came out, looked him up and down and said, uh, well, I can't bury you. 
Not unless you've got a death cert. Go over to the local lord. He might be able to sort you out. And the first brother, the brother who was by now 100% certain that he was a devil, thought, well, I can't stay out here. It's getting very cold. Devils aren't good in cold. I need to be somewhere warm. I need to be in hell. I know. I'll go to the local lord. I'm sure he has a direct connection to hell and he can sort me out. The local lord was tucked up in his comfortable bed when there suddenly came a thunderous knocking on his door. He tried to get back to sleep, but the knocking would not stop. And it happened to be the servant's day off, so he himself put on his dressing gown, put on his slippers, lit a candle, and grumbling made his way down the great staircase to the door. And as soon as he opened the door, he saw a man with a shaved head screaming at him, I'm a lunatic, I'm a lunatic, I need official cert to say I can get into the asylum. And the man rushed into the house. The Lord was about to close the door when there suddenly came another figure running up. And this figure, he was chalk white, and he was saying, I'm a corpse, I'm a corpse, I'm a corpse, I need to be buried, I need a death cert. And the man claiming to be a corpse rushed into the house. And the local lord was just about to close the door when there came a third figure, a figure who was bright red with two horns on the top of his head and a tail poking at the back of his trousers. And the third figure came and saying, I'm a demon, I'm a demon, I'm a demon, I need to get to hell. And he also rushed into the house. The local lord wasn't exactly sure what to do. I mean, he, he was pretty certain that the man wasn't actually a demon. He was fairly certain that the man wasn't actually a corpse and well, he would have been a bit iffy about if the, the man was a lunatic. But the thing was, he recognised these three men. They were tenants of his. Three brothers. Three brothers who were married to three sisters. And he knew these, these were the husbands of the three women he'd been talking to in the pub. And they had indeed proved that their husbands were easily greater fools than they'd even been making them out to be. And, and he would have gone and told the sisters that, well done, you've won the wager, you now get a, a year rent free. But the problem was he still had these three fools running about his house. And the three men, they were getting themselves into an awful state. One demanding to be buried, one demanding to be locked up in an asylum, and one just begging to be brought to hell. So the local lord, he, he did what he could to, to try to calm them down a bit. He had a, a tall, narrow, wooden wardrobe. He went over to it, took the clothes out, threw them into a corner, and got the man who was claiming to be a corpse, stood him in the wardrobe and said, here you go, here's a coffin for you. He got some red paint and painted a circle in a warm place near the fire and put the man who was a demon there and said, look, here, stand there, there's a little bit of hell for you. And, well, he had to chase the man who was claiming to be a lunatic all around the house, but at last he managed to catch him, bundle him up in a load of blankets and say, look, just stay still. Asylum means safety and you're very safe under a blanket. And the three brothers were, were reasonably happy in their coffin wardrobe, in their red painted splot of hell and in their asylum of a safety blanket. Once the three men seemed to be settled, the Lord rushed out of the house, still in his slippers, still in his dressing gown, and he went to the home of the three sisters. He knocked on the first door and there was no one there. He knocked on the second, there was no one. But when he finally knocked on the third, he found all three sisters sitting around the table, having a nice cup of tea and merrily chatting to each other. The Lord came in 
threw himself down on his knees in front of them and said, please, please, you've, you've, you've proven that you were telling the truth and you've proven that I was a fool. But please, I beg you, your three husbands are in my house. And if you can get them to leave, I will not only give you the land for a year rent free, I will give it to you. I will sign the deeds over. You will own your own land, own your own homes. But please, just get rid of your husbands. The three women, well, they went to the Lord's house and went to put their husbands back to rights. The first sister, she went to the wardrobe her husband had made into his own little comfy coffin. She opened the doors, leant forward and gave him a kiss and said, There, that's a kiss of life. Now stop all this nonsense and come back home with me. The second sister, she got a bucket of warm, soapy water, walked over to where her husband was standing on a red-painted circle, hoping that he was going to get to hell soon. She threw the bucket of soapy water over him and said, There, that is purifying cleanliness. Your soul is now saved from hell. You're no longer a demon. Come on back home and we'll get you dried off. And the third sister, well, she went to where her husband was wrapped up in the comfort blankets, unwrapped him and said, Oh, there you are. I've been looking for you. And I see you found your good sense as well. You finally decided to shave your head. You look so good, bald. And she took him home. And when they'd all got home, the three sisters explained what had happened to them and how now, due to their husband's foolishness and their cleverness, they now owned their own land. And the husbands, well, they all laughed as well, thinking, ah, in hindsight, it was a bit of a good joke. And they now owned their own land. And they named their land. The first brother. Well, he called his land the Devil's Field. The second brother. He called his land the Dead Man's Field. And the third. He called his land the Madman's Field. Because they might be three very foolish men. But they knew a good thing when they saw it. And the three brothers and the three sisters. They lived happily ever after, or happily enough. So as you can see, it wasn't just the three husbands that were fools in this story, but it was the landlord as well. And he thought he had something over the three wives and especially the three husbands. But in the end, he ended up making a loss. And that's very common that the people who think they have power The people who think they are in control actually turn out to be the fools themselves. Now, in my opinion, the biggest fool in Irish folklore is the devil. A a very specific version of the devil. uh, In Irish folklore, the upper class and the working class have their own version of the devil. Both see the devil as being somewhat upper class, but... In the upper-class stories, the devil is very suave, very debonair, and actually isn't that threatening, just kind of shows up and is vaguely annoying. But in the working-class stories, the devil is vicious and a little bit thuggish and is trying to kill you or to rob you of your soul, but is also very, very easily tricked. Tricked by schemes and plans that a two-year-old could see through fairly easily. 
Long ago, there was a man named Jack. And he and his wife, they owned a tiny, tiny patch of land. They could barely grow the crops they needed to keep themselves alive. They didn't own a cow or a pig. They didn't even own any chickens. And one year, the crop was particularly bad. There wasn't enough food to eat. And so Jack, one day, he set off down the road, searching for work. Looking for bits of jobs he could do to earn some money to buy some food. And he had been walking for hours and hours down that road, looking desperately for anyone who might hire him. He was crossing a very steep bridge. And he said to himself as he did, just straining with the effort of it, If I ever cross this bridge again, may the devil snap me neck. And so he kept going. And he came upon a beggar by the side of the road. And so he gave the beggar one of the three shillings that was in his pocket. And the beggar said, Well, for that, I'll grant you a wish. So Jackie thought about this and he said, There's an old apple tree in the back garden. I wish that it would grow apples again. And that no one could steal those apples. I wish it would grow apples again. And that anyone who tried to take an apple from my tree, except me or my wife, would be stuck to that tree until I let them go. The beggar said, well, that's fine. Wish granted. And Jack set off back down the road. He'd been walking for about a half hour before he came upon another beggar. And he gave this beggar the second shilling from his pocket. And the beggar said, well, for that, I'll grant you a wish. And Jack thought to himself, I have a special bottle at home. I wish that whoever I told to get in that bottle would get into it and they'd be stuck there until I let them out. The beggar said, oh, well, that's fine. Wish granted. And so Jack set off back down the road. He'd been walking only about 45 minutes before he came upon a third beggar. He gave this beggar his final shilling and the beggar said, thank you very much. As thank you for that, I'll grant you a wish. And Jack thought to himself, This sack I'm carrying, I wish that whoever I told to get into it would have to get into it, and that they wouldn't be able to get out again until they were let out. And the beggar granted that wish. At this point, Jack He'd been walking for hours and hours. It was beginning to get dark. There was no chance of finding any work. So he decided to turn around and head home. And just as he was crossing that steep bridge again, there was a puff of flame and smoke, and the devil appeared on the bridge. Well now, Jack... The last time you crossed this bridge, you said... May the devil snap my neck if I ever cross this bridge again. And so I've come, Jack. 
I have come to make sure the deed is done. And so Jack, not wanting his neck snapped by the devil, he thought very quickly, and he took the sack off his back, and he ordered the devil to get inside it. So the devil had to because of the wish the beggar had granted. So Jack, he carried the sack with the devil inside it all the way home. And as he was making his way home, he spotted two women cleaning clothes in a river. And they were beating and pounding those clothes with laundry bats, which is how laundry was done at the time. And he went over to them and he asked, Could you two do me a favour? This sack, I'm, it's very old, it's very dirty. Could you please clean my sack for me? And so the two women, they took the sack off his hands. They put it in the river along with the clothes and they started beating and pounding the sack as hard as they could with their laundry bats. The devil inside taking the brunt of the beating. They said to him, your sack, it's very lumpy, as they handed it back to him. And so he took the sack and he kept carrying it home until he came upon a blacksmith. And he went into the blacksmith and he said, I want you to take my sack, to put it on your anvil, and to pound it as hard as you can with your hammer. And so the blacksmith, he takes Jack's sack, and he puts it on the anvil, and he starts beating it as hard as he can with the hammer, with the devil inside it. And the devil is inside screaming and yowling in pain, until a hole forms in the sack. The devil presses his eye up against it, and when the blacksmith sees it, he takes a red-hot poker and jams it into the devil's eye. Which is why the devil is blind. But, in the commotion, after being blinded, the devil turned into a puff of smoke and escaped through the hole in the sack. And so the next day, the devil turns up at Jack's home. And he says to Jack, Come on now, Jack. It's time we made good on our arrangement. Fair enough, said Jack. I'm ready, I'm willing. But why don't you come inside first? We'll have a bit of a drink, and then we can get going. And so the devil follows Jack inside. And he sets out two glasses upon the table. And he reaches for his special bottle, saying, Oh, now this is the good stuff. You're going to love this. He opens up the bottle and he orders the devil to get inside. And because of the wish granted by the beggar, the devil had to get inside. And he sealed up the bottle and he kept it there on that table for seven years. Until the cat accidentally knocked it over and it smashed to pieces the devil disappeared in a puff of smoke the next day the devil came back to Jack's house and he said you've tricked me twice Jack you'll not trick me a third time it's time we made good on our arrangement and Jack said fair enough fair enough if I can just have one last thing before I go. I would just love to have one last apple 
from the tree in the back garden. Could you go and fetch it for me? So the devil, he goes out to the back garden and he reaches up to the, one of the apples on the tree and finds he is stuck because of the wish granted by the beggar. And he is stuck there until Jack sees fit to release him, which he never does. After seven years pass, Jack's wife is very cold one night. And she goes out looking for wood for the fire and she cuts down some of the branches from the apple tree, including the one the devil was stuck to. And the devil laughs in delight and he screams out that he never, ever wants to see Jack ever again. He renounces his claim to Jack, turns into a puff of smoke and disappears forever. Now, a few months later, Jack's wife is about to give birth. And Jack is desperately searching for someone to be the godfather. He needs a godfather for his child. But he can't think of anyone. He doesn't know anyone who could do the job who would be a suitable godfather. And as he was walking along looking for a godfather, he sees the devil again for the first time in years. And the devil says, I hear you're going to have a son, Jack. I hear you're looking for a godfather. I would love to be the child's godfather, Jack. And you know I could do right by the child. Now Jack thought about this. The devil would be, or could be, a very good godfather. But he didn't want to give the devil any kind of claim over his son. And so he said, no, I'd rather be dead round than make you my son's godfather. And the devil vanished in a furious puff of flame. And Jack kept walking down. And eventually he came upon God. And God said, I hear you're going to have a son, Jack. I hear you're looking for a godfather. I would love to be the child's godfather. I would take great care of him, Jack. And Jack thought to himself, hmm, Is this who I want as my child's godfather? Where was he all the times the devil was after my soul? Where was he when we were starving? No, said Jack. I will not make you my child's godfather. And so God, furious, vanished. And Jack, Jack kept walking down the road until he came upon death. And death said, I hear you're going to have a son, Jack. I hear you're looking for a godfather. If you swear to give me your life here and now, Jack, I would be happy to perform that duty for you. And Jack thinks to himself, 
It would be no harm for death to have affection for the lad. That would probably do him in good stead down the line. And so he agreed. And so they went to the christening together. And death was officially made the godfather of Jack's son. And then death turned and he said, Now, Jack, it is time to hold up your end of the bargain. It is time for you to die, Jack. And so, Jack and death, they went first to heaven. And just as Jack was about to enter the gates, God appeared and he said, No, no, we are not letting Jack in here. He turned me down as his child's godfather. I don't want him in here. And so instead, death took Jack to hell. And when they arrived at hell, Death said, no, 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 I am not letting him in here. He has tricked me so many times, he's not coming in here to do it again. So Death, he had no choice but to let Jack live and to remain on Earth with his family. Now that was roughly 200 years ago. And he's still there, living with his grandchildren and his great-grandchildren. And he probably always will be. Now, there's a few different versions of this story. Not all of them end quite so well for Jack. Usually, rather than being left to be an immortal, he is left wandering limbo forever. But in all the versions of the story... They all serve as a really good demonstration of how easily fooled and easily tricked the devil is in the working class stories of Irish folklore. And that's a fairly consistent image. It's a fairly consistent idea. The devil is nearly always a fool in these stories. He's nearly always made a fool of. I've been talking about a very specific kind of fool from Irish folklore. The arrogant, imperious fool who thinks he's smarter or better or more powerful than everyone else. Now, that is the most common kind of fool in Irish folklore, but it's not the only kind. So I'm going to hand you over now to Pawdy, who's going to talk about the other kind and will lead us out of the podcast. So enjoy. Hello everyone, I'm just reaching out to you now from lockdown to tell you another fool story for this April Fool's Day. And for this story, well, I'm going to tell you about a fool naturally. And fools to me have, have always been uh, very interesting. I look at the, the fool in the, in the tarot deck and that always appeals to me. This idea of uh, this person that's emblematic, as they say of someone just about to set out on a journey and they have no idea what's in store for them. Phrases like the the holy fool to describe someone who's in touch with the other world. And that's always been of interest to me. And I'm going to tell you a story of someone who's a bit like that. I'm going to tell you, well, let's not beat around the bush with it. 
So it's it's about a small place called Clune Fush, and it begins a little bit like this. So in the old days, when the mail coaches were still running, so those coaches that carried goods and post and people from town to town, the population of the country was much larger. So in other words, it's before the famine. Marketplaces were crowded with products of the agricultural com- community surrounding the streets of, of Tume, which was a bustling place in those days with a very business-like appearance. And in Tume, there was a strange and wild-looking scarecrow figure known as Mad Bodine. And Mad Bodine was ever to be seen skipping through the streets during the day. Uh, where he rested at night, few of the townspeople really knew or, or cared for that matter. He wore a very strange costume, even for those days. He wore a high conical uh, velvet cap, a stained loosely fitting body coat of, of, of red. They were both of red, but uh, they were used to be red, if you know what I mean. They were much the worse for wear. His legs and feet were bare which gave him great freedom to move about. And he also carried a jockey's crop with a long leather thong attached to it, so a long piece of leather, uh, which he used to, to, to crack at people uh, for his defence. And all of these these articles, all of this costume were given to him by the, the jockeys from the Galway races as, as a bit of fun to dress up Mad Paddy. He often told wild, extravagant stories about the adventures he'd been engaged in, um, creatures from every conceivable uh, myth and legend were involved in his stories sometimes. And the country people believed that kind of innocent uh, people like Pardeen had very close relations with the fairies as well. And for this, they were always treated with compassion. He never wanted for a small bit to eat, or, and people would let him sleep in, in their shed sometimes. And about two miles southwards from Chum, there is the small town aforementioned Clunfush. It's a lonely, kind of isolated place with an ancient burial uh, grounds known as Temple Jarleth. And Pauline was often found in Temple Charlotte, sitting on a rude headstone, talking to himself. And one evening late in, in the autumn, he fell asleep there, fell asleep on, on one of the, the tombstones, or one of the, one of the uh, crypts. And a comfortable farmstead was also in, the, in that neck of the woods. And there lived the widow Mullaly and her grown-up sons and daughters. She was mistress of the house. She was a stern woman sometimes, but she was also very kind to Pauline. He often stopped by the house, and uh, with that family he was usually well-behaved, usually well-fed, and they looked after him, and they were happy to hear all of his stories. The Mullalys were early risers, unlike uh, the Pardine in this story, and Pardine myself. Uh, <laughs> I'm not an early riser. I'm the kind that looks at the clock at 2am and goes, uh, maybe I should think about going to bed. He hastened to open the door one morning and he, he sat down for, uh, for a good breakfast in their house. And afterwards, he sat down in the chimney corner beside the turf fire 
and began to uh, converse with the widow Mullaly. Pauline, said she, why did you sleep out in the cold churchyard last night? Well, you knew we'd only be too glad to give you supper and a bed here. I'll tell you, ma'am, I knew there was an old villain planning great mischief for you all, and I intended to catch him and whip him across the shoulders. Who was he, Pauline? said the widow Mullaly. I don't know, ma'am, but I found the vagabond and made him pay for his villainy. Just listen, and I'll tell you the whole story. Mrs. Mullaly and her children were amused rather than taken in, but they drew their chairs in, in a semicircle round the fire, uh, ready uh, for the, the wild story they were about to hear. They noticed Pawdeen's eyes dilate and his features lit up. His tone of voice gradually changed, became more engaging, and he began his tale of the evil doings of the miscreant he had encountered. As I lay down on the ground near the old church wall, a big ugly fellow turned around the corner. He looked very impudent at me and asked what brought me there. I told him it was none of his business and took up my whip to slap him across the shins. The rogue got scared and called down a big black cloud in the shape of a horse. He threw his legs across its back and caught its mane. Up they both flew into the stars, and as the vagabond pulled those stars out of their places, he put them into his pockets. I shouted that he should leave the stars alone, but he replied that they were not stars at all, but only silver half-crowns, shillings and sixpences. What did you say, Pauline? said the widow, winking good-humouredly at the other members of her family. I shouted louder than before, that when he'd come down, I'd whip him for his thieving. But he only laughed and kept going until his pockets were full. Then he fled through the sky at the speed of a hunt. It was so dark that I lost sight of his tracks, and the thieving pickpockets made his escape. If you look out the window, you see, he didn't leave a single star in the sky. <laughs>